Well, as we jump into the sermon this morning, I wanted to ask you, have you ever run away? Ever run away from home? Whenever I was a little kid, I can remember it so, so vividly in my mind. We lived in a neighborhood um, similar to the neighborhoods around here, houses fairly close together, and I went to a private Christian school about 30 minutes away, and you're like, oh, he went to one of those schools. That says a lot about him. Now I understand him a little bit more. But just kidding. Uh, it's, um, it was a great school for the most part, except I hated third grade. More than that, like I, because I so strongly disliked my teacher that year, I did not like going to school at all. And the bus would come to the front of my house every day because I was the only one from my neighborhood going 30 minutes to Sewickley to school and um, pick me up and drive me to school. Well, on one particular day, I decided that I was done. I left the bus stop, the front of my house, ran past the neighbor's yard. He had a nice big garden, always sunflowers in Mr. Schneider's garden and ran past his house to the field next door, next street down, and hid behind the bushes. And uh, I remember my mother having to come look for me throughout the neighborhood, and the bus driver waited for me, and she forced me to get on the bus. I was regularly difficult to get on the bus. One time I made my mother ride to school with me in her pajamas. Um, total mama's boy, I guess. But anyways, I ran away because the thought of going to school was just awful. The thought of dealing with Ms. Mrs. Rensel was unbearable for me, and I'm still struggling with forgiveness to this day. You could pray for me. Um, but today we're going to look at a passage about someone who ran away. And what we're going to discover in this passage is that we have a God who sees us in our wanderings. But we have a God who when life is hard, when we feel like throwing our hands up, when we don't understand the things that have happened to us, we have a God who sees us as we wander. Last week, we looked at Genesis 12, 15, and 17, which is kind of a big overview. And this week, we're gonna kind of dive in to chapter 16 and look at that together. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis Chapter 16, I'm going to read the whole chapter, which isn't very long, together. Hear the word of the Lord. Abram's wife, Sarah, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarah, I said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So, Abram, uh, so Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. And then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, here's your slave. Your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. 
the angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are Elroy. For she said, in this place, I have actually seen the one who sees me. That is why the well is called Bir Laharoi. It is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need your word because we need your voice to speak into the chaos of our lives and center us around Jesus again. So God, help us in these next minutes to devote our attention when so many things are demanding our attention in our minds to devote our attention to you and what you have to say. Would you speak to us, Holy Spirit, and would you shape us into the image of, your, of Christ? In Jesus' name, amen. I've got three points today. Uh, the first is the problem and the plan. The passage starts out with a really simple statement. Abram's wife had not, has not had any children. Now, this is a really big deal of a statement that's so easy to just pass over. And why is it a big deal? It's a big deal because back in Genesis 12, we saw God called Abram out of his father's house, away from his place of security, away from his place of belonging, away from his, his place of financial security, away from his place of provision, to, away from everything he's known. God called Abram out of that and told him to follow him with the promise that he would make Abram's name great. Talked about this last week. And that Abram would be a blessing to all the nations. And he was a youthful 75 years old when this happened. We fast forward to Genesis 15. Again, the passage we talked about last week. And we saw that God made a covenant with Abram, right? God took him outside and told him to look at the sky and said, see, Abram, your descendants are gonna be like this star-filled sky. And God guaranteed in that covenant of grace that he would bring this plan about. But then there it is in verse three, 10 years have passed, 10 long years of waiting for children. Abram and Sarah, they aren't getting any younger. And at 85, you could imagine that they're beginning to have doubts. They're beginning to wonder if they're understanding correctly at all. Because 10 years is a long time to wait for anything. And some of you will have known the pain of waiting years and years for children. 
10 years feels longer when God made a promise to you 10 years ago. And here you are 85 years old and you still have no kids to show for it. And you start wondering, well, didn't God make a promise to me? Didn't he say that there'd be descendants like the stars in the sky and that promise feels less like a promise made and more like a problem to be solved. That's where Abram and Sarai are at. And so Sarai comes up with a little plan, right? In verse two, it says, Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. Now it seems a bit odd and let's not be too, too hard on Sarai right now because in the ancient Near East, we know from reading other documents that it was really common practice for if a woman couldn't be pregnant to, to go to her slave or to some other girl and to basically have her be a surrogate mother for her. And so this is, this is where Sarai's thinking. Okay, I, don't, I haven't had kids. I'm 85. Maybe, maybe we're gonna just, we'll, we'll use Hagar. And let's think about something. Sarai hasn't heard the voice of God. 10 years ago, Abram came out, came in from wherever he was and he was like, honey, God's calling us out. We're moving, pack up the bags. We're moving away from my family. And she's like, where are we going? I don't know, God's called us away from my family. We're gonna follow him. Sarai follows him. And then a little bit later, Abram's like, Sarai, you'll never believe what happened. God told me that we would have so many descendants, so many descendants. In fact, he showed me in a vision of him, like I had to make a coven. I had to cut up all these animals and I, had to, and I saw God pass through it represented by a smoking fire pot. And Sarai's like, great, this is good. But she has not experienced anything for herself. And 10 years later, there she is, barren. And this is where I kind of want us to step into the story a little bit more and into what's going on, into maybe the emotions at play. The Bible doesn't give us much of the emotional reactions of people in the text, but I don't think it's wrong for us to step in and just wonder the emotional state of Sarai, because there she is, no kids, told by her husband that there was this promise made. And then in that time, it was common belief that if you didn't have kids, God has rejected you. That's where Sarai is. Probably feeling deeply pained. She, she feels rejected. And then compound that in the fact that sometimes in that culture, women who couldn't bear kids, their children were sometimes lowered in their status with their husbands, sometimes had a lower social status in society. And if we ask Sarah, 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 where have you been? She might start telling you this story through tears about how 10 years ago, God made a promise and she doubts the promise is gonna happen. So she comes up with another way. Maybe it's supposed to happen through a surrogate mother. So she pitches this idea to her husband, Abram, and Abram goes right along with it. 
He adopts the new family expansion plan. He takes Hagar as a wife and he gets her pregnant. And again, like I want us to, to just step in to the text a little bit and say, see, Abram is probably starting to doubt too. Starting to take matters into his own hands a little bit as well. And let me ask you this. Do you identify with Abram and Sarai? Do you feel like that God maybe has abandoned you? That maybe he has left you out in the cold? That he has left you to fend for himself? That even though you know he's supposed to be your protector, he doesn't seem so protective. That's where Abram and Sarah are. And they start moving ahead of God and coming up with their own plan in the middle of all of this. Abraham sleeps with Hagar. She gets pregnant, appears right away. And here's the other thing, Hagar. Hagar doesn't seem to get much of a say in any of this. She's a slave girl. We can never really know, but this was pretty customary at the time. But she gets pregnant and then things get more messy. Look in verse four. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. And then Sarai will, will have none of it. She said to Abram, you're responsible for my suffering. I gave you my slave. And when she saw that she was pregnant, I'm the one that became contemptible. First, I don't have kids. Now I give you this slave girl and now she doesn't like me. May the Lord judge between me and you. So the situation isn't bad enough. Hagar's looking down on Sarai. How does Abraham respond? Well, verse six, here's your slave. Do whatever you want with her. And then it says, Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. There's a lot in these few verses. We see a couple different things. We see false pride, right? We see that Hagar, now that she's pregnant, she has this false sense of pride. She, she looks down on Sarai, her mistress. And Sarai is ripped because Hagar is arrogant and condescending. We see false blame. Whose plan was it all along that, that Hagar sleep with Abram? It was Sarai's plan. And so now Sarai is just dumping all the blame on Abram. And believe me, Abram should, should definitely get part of the blame. And we see that he takes a neutral stance, like terrible husbandship here. He, he just tries like being neutral in the whole time, like playing both sides. Uh, okay, here's your slave, do whatever he wants with her. He just goes along with his wife's bad plan, doesn't lead his family and then he puts Hagar in a precarious position by giving her back to Sarai. We see mistreatment because it says that, that Sarai mistreated Hagar so badly that Hagar ran away. And in the Hebrew, there's, if, if we're reading it right, it's, it's probably some sort of physical abuse that's going on. It's awful. All this because they just started taking the plan of God into their own hands. Which leads to our next point, Hagar and the angel. And when I read, when I read this text, I start to immediately feel so bad for Hagar. 
because she just gets caught up in the mess of Abram and Sarai, right? Like she's forced to have a kid to Abram. Then she gets mistreated by Sarai. It's awful. And she flees because she, she wasn't gonna stay because staying, who knows what would have happened if she would have stayed. If it was physical abuse, maybe she would have lost the baby. I don't know. But the mistreatment was bad and she starts heading back home in the direction towards Egypt. And that's when we see this. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, this is in verse seven, he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Where have you come from and where are you going? want us to sit with that question a minute. Because there's something really, really beautiful about the question that I think we need to reflect upon. This angel of the Lord is some sort of theophany, some sort of appearance of God we, we learn later in the text. And he comes to Hagar, the one caught up in all of the misdeeds of where she came from. The one hurting and broken, bearing a kid with, a, with the dad of the kid doesn't seem to even care. But God comes to her in the middle of the pain and he just says, where have you come from? And where are you going? He doesn't ask Hagar, why are you running away? He doesn't minimize Hagar's pain. He doesn't just give her things to do he asked her two questions because God saw Hagar in her wandering and he met her in her deepest, darkest place. And I just want to take a moment, kind of an aside, to use this as a springboard for how we talk with one another and how we talk about how we talk about one another. Because if we live in the world at all, we're to encounter people who experience significant pain. In fact, everyone in this room, I'm sure, has been met with some significant pain, some form or another. And everyone has come from a place. Where have you come from? And is going towards a place. Where are you going? And the person that God runs to it's the one who is broken, the one who is mistreated, the one who is probably abused, the slave girl. And I was wondering, friends, what if we took our cue from God when it comes to the way we counsel and interact with one another? What if instead of prejudging, what if instead of assuming motives, what if instead of thinking we know all the answers, we asked questions? Like, hey, I know you're broken. Where have you come from? Where have you come from? What if when someone confesses a trauma in their lives that we don't feel the need to diagnose, but just walked with people? We're living in a time when a lot of people are asking really big questions about faith. All of those questions 
I tend to think when people are asking questions, they, they need to be treated as good ones. Um, and some people are asking deep questions of faith because of what they've experienced at the hands of people who've called themselves Christians, whether that was their mom or their dad or their pastors or their family members or whatever. Maybe it was um, mistreatment or, or worse. Diane Lamberg, who's a Christian psychotherapist, says this, that trauma is perhaps the greatest mission field of the 21st century. As a nation, we've even went through some sort of corporate or collective trauma of all the emotions that swirled around COVID-19 and lots of death, and lots of hurt feelings on every side of the political spectrum. And, and what if we were people who just asked the question of those hurting, hey, where have you come from? And where are you going? Let's be a family of faith that models the counsel of our good father in scripture. That when someone comes to us and bears a struggle with sin, that some, when someone comes to us and bears something that hurt them in the past, that when someone comes to us in it feels sort of some sense of woundedness. We don't just feel the need to treat them like a patient, but we feel the, the desire to come alongside them like a friend and just to hear and understand their story because our stories are so formative and they have a way of shaping us. This, the way we grew up shapes who we are. And what if we were just were people who sought to understand before we seek? to be understood. Let's demonstrate a deep, sincere inquisitiveness about the stories of one another. God gave Hagar space and time. He asked a simple question, where have you come from? And he gave her the grace to answer. And Hagar gives an answer to the first question. She says, I'm running from my mistreatment with Abram and Sarai. But do you notice she doesn't give an answer for the second? Clearly, she's headed back towards her homeland. But I just wonder, and the text doesn't say, so I'm just going to speculate a little bit. I just wonder if she doesn't really know exactly where she's going. Like maybe she's headed in a direction because she's headed to where she came from, but she's a slave girl. Maybe she doesn't know for sure. She just knows she's running from hurt, from trauma, from mistreatment. And then the angel gives Hagar three instructions. He says, go back to Sarai and submit. Now, when I read that for the first time, I was like, what? Why would God do that? Why in the world would God ask this slave girl to go back to Abram and Sarai? I don't know all the reasons, but here's what I do know. And this is important to understand. That God doesn't bless the way things are done in the past but he sometimes tolerates it because it's the context of the people that the, that the people were living in. God doesn't, God tolerates the things of the past. He doesn't bless it. So he's not blessing what Abram and Sarai are doing. He's merely tolerating the social convention of the time and works within it for his glory. And then the angel says, I will multiply your offspring. So he gives her hope. Right, he gives her something, a future. Hey, I'm gonna multiply this offspring. And then he, then he says that you're gonna call him Ishmael because God has heard. 
The angel doesn't dismiss her fears. The angel doesn't just soothe her. But what the angel does is he gives her something to hold on to. He braces whatever fear she has and says, no, you can go back there because this is the promise that I'm giving you right now, that God has heard you. He has seen you in your moment of deepest need. And I'm giving you a promise that, he, that your offspring is gonna multiply on the earth. The angel shows God's favor on Hagar. And then how does she respond? Well, that's our last point. The response in you. In the faithlessness of Abram and Sarai, in their desire to just take the plan of God into their own hands, to see, to see it through that they would have a kid according to the, maybe their plans and forget the promise that God has made, it is Hagar, the Egyptian slave girl, is, She's the one that displays astonishing faith because what does she do? In the middle of this deep, dark moment, what is she, she names God. And this might just seem like an easy thing to pass over, and, but this is the only time in all of Holy Scripture, I believe, that somebody actually names God. Most of the time, God reveals himself as something, but she names God, the God who has seen, a slave girl, not God's chosen people, Abram and Sarai, significant. And she has so much faith when Abram and Sarai don't display much at all. And she says in verse 14, in this place, I, have I actually seen the one who sees me? God is a God sees. We have a God who creates and hurls planets into the sky. We have a God who judges sin, right? Who, who wiped out the earth with, with Noah and the flood, who, who smothered the desires of the kingdom of Babylon when he crushed that tower and sent everyone into confusion. We have a God who relates by grace, and we have a God who sees the broken and the hurting. He cares. Psalm 34 says this, that the Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those crushed in spirit. This is the God of the Bible. He is the God of the outcast, of the downtrodden. And he's the God who sees their pain. Hagar realizes that she's been seen by God himself. And so she goes back, holding on to a promise, probably fearful of what may come, but she has faith in the middle of all of this. And sometimes God calls us to things. He gives us a hope, and he gives us, he puts before us a promise and he calls us to step out in faith. But then something else interesting happens in the story. She gets back and she named, and what do we see? That Abram names the boy Ishmael. This is significant because Abram wasn't the one that got a vision of God, right? In this passage, Hagar was. And I have to wonder, 
if Hagar gets back there after being gone for a few days and she goes to Abram and said, you're never gonna believe what happened. All that God stuff you were talking about, that seeing that flaming fire pot, that being called, all that, well, he appeared to me and he said that we're to name this kid Ishmael. And you don't wonder if Abram took a step back and realizes what had happened and what he had done. And he names the kid the name that Hagar said to name him. I'm guessing Abram had some sort of repentance in there. After all, the next chapter, God calls, calls him and says, hey, walk before me and be blameless. And that's what we looked at last week with the covenant of circumcision. But Abram demonstrates some reacquaintedness with belief in the promise of God. And that's signified by him naming the baby Ishmael. Not some other name that he decided, not some other name that Sarah decided, but the name that God told Hagar to name the child. And there's a lot we could say about this passage, about how it intersects with, with life here thousands of years later. But I think what we can learn is that we cannot manipulate God. You cannot kind of squeeze God into your plans. If, if he has set something in motion, he will see it through. We cannot negotiate with God. We cannot, we cannot put God in a losing hand. We cannot manipulate him. God's people tried alternatives and they failed. I think another thing we can say about this is that God sees us in our sin. You know, it's easy to read this passage and maybe you don't identify with Hagar at all. Maybe you identify more with Abram, trying to always play the middle ground, getting caught up in sin because you won't stand up for what's right. Maybe you identify more with Sarai. I don't know. But the answer to both of those things is that God sees your sin. Sure, you may not have done as heinous sins as what Abram and Sarai did to Hagar, but I'm just saying that we have a God who sees sin and we, he sees the sinned against and the person that he runs to in the story is the sinned against, which should serve as some sort of warning for the sinner that we need to bow in repentance before God because he runs to the brokenhearted and the downcast. And that when someone puts sin, our sin in our face, or when, when the Holy Spirit makes sin come to life for us in our own eyes, we need to not get stiff-necked with it, but we need to repent of it. We need to have the same kind of movement Abraham has at the end of this passage where we're like, okay, and submit back to the plan of God and realize that it is God who forgives We've already said this one before, but the other thing we can learn is that God sees you in your pain. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with things you've done, you struggle with sin, just the fact that it keeps getting the upper hand. If you're struggling with hurt because of things that have been done to you, if you're struggling with trauma, loneliness, sadness, whatever it might be, will you have a God who decided to put this story in the Bible 
to show you that he will run to you in your brokenness, that he's here, that he's asking, where have you come from and where are you going? And we have a savior who was moved by our pain so much, by the things that we've done and by the things that have been done to us that he came and he died on a cross. He is moved with love towards you. Last, God promises a greater future. That's one of the other points of applications. Hagar was given a future and a hope from God. She stepped out in great faith and followed the God who called her. And friends, in Jesus, we have a great future. I don't get how it's all gonna come together. I don't get how it's all gonna work out. But like Hagar, we have a God who, who knows us in our wanderings, who sees us in our wanderings, who calls us to step out and follow him in faith because he has given us hope. So friends, I would ask you, as we kind of bring this to a close, where have you come from and where are you going? Maybe one of the best ways I can ask you to apply this text this week is to grab some time, sometime maybe before next Sunday, get a journal and a pen or a pencil, maybe a Bible, and to ask yourself, where have you come from? Where have I come from? What's going on in the, in the recesses of my heart? Like what's going on deep inside of me that I need to just pause for long enough to acknowledge. And I know for the moms in this room, getting like five minutes to do anything sounds like a dream, but dads, help mom out. Um, get her some time and vice versa. Ask those questions of your heart. Where am I come from? Like, what's going on? Why do I get so short-fused sometimes? Why, why am I so down? And I'll just acknowledge those things. Write them out, put them in your journal, make them a prayer before God. God, this is how I'm feeling. And just be completely honest. And if you need a, a guide for that, turn to the Psalms. Then I would ask yourself another question. Where am I going? Like if I continue on this path, where does it lead? If I don't get help, where's it gonna take me? If I stop trying to avoid God, if I keep trying to avoid God, where's that gonna lead? I just write it out. Spend some time doing that. And then, friends, this may be the hardest thing I ask you, is that to share those things with a trusted brother or sister in Christ. To let someone else into your story. To let someone else point you to God. 